Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Ben Miller, has family involved in both politics and healthcare. With these excellent credentials and now as the president of the Wellbeing Trust, he's very well placed to address the major challenges of healthcare and how it can best respond to those who need it most. Here to share his insight and his story is Ben Miller. Welcome to the show, Ben. I'm thrilled that you've taken the time to speak with me today. It's been a while coordinating it from both our sides, so I'm really pleased we were able to do that. I want to start the conversation getting to know you a little bit. Who is Ben Miller and why is he interested in people? Because that's essentially what you do. It is what I do. And thank you so much. It's uh, it's an honor to be on with you and it's great to get to know you. And thank you for the patience in trying to schedule this. So here we are. I'm looking forward to this discussion today, this dialogue. Uh, who who am I? Well, to explain myself, you need to understand my humble beginnings. My origin story is really about a kid who grew up with grandparents who, on one side of the family, were very involved in politics. Uh, I remember when I was actually, uh, well, you can't see this because we're on a podcast, but I have a, a brass donkey that my grandmother gave me when I was born. And literally, she told my dad, never let him forget where he came from. So I was raised in this political world where my grandparents were both in office. They taught me the importance of really connecting authentically to community, to represent the needs of those who don't have a voice, and to do what you can to really try and serve and and really enable communities to, uh, to be their best selves. On the other side of the family, I had a grandfather and a grandmother that were involved in healthcare. My grandfather was a physician. He actually became a physician after the war and got very involved in local healthcare. One of the things that's interesting is that when you're a physician in a small town, you get appointed to every board. You're on the school board, you're on the chamber of commerce, you're on the bank. And so I grew up in the middle of that. It's a, it's a weird way for me to answer the question, but it actually defines who I am. Because I am a political animal who deals in policy. I am passionate about health and health care. And the mental health piece is just the natural kind of symbiotic connection between politics and health. That's an interesting juxtaposition because we don't think of health care, particularly when we think about politics, because so much of healthcare is controversial, particularly when it comes to politics. And you're interested in people and very much in the individual person and how they're coping with life and how their healthcare is impacting on their well-being. Let's go to that point. From the perspective of somebody who was interested in the big picture and politics, how did you then focus down, as you've done in clinical psychology, which is very, very upfront and close to the person that has the problem? For me, it really, it began as my first job out of college. I went and worked as a special education teacher and that changed my life. I mean, it literally did. I, all of us have these, these scenarios and maybe you've got friends or family that have taken jobs or done Peace Corps or, or traveled the world or something. And there's that moment where they say, 
that's when I realized that's what I wanted to do. That's when I realized I needed to do more. That's when I realized I was going to become fill in the blank. And so for me, it was working two years as a special education teacher with zero training in being a teacher. And what I saw there and why I, I'm still to this day, it's almost like a visceral response I have when I talk about these kids. I mean, I saw trauma. I saw pain. I saw a system that was set up to make it really difficult for people to succeed. I saw this inability of people to escape a system and a, a structure that really enabled them to be stuck. And I said, That's, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. And so it was that, at that time that I realized that I needed to do more at the systems level. And the principal of the school that I worked in, a dear man named Larry, Ch Larry Chapman, uh, everybody called him Chappy, Dr. Chapman, if you, you were in a meeting. Chappy said, listen, son, if you want to make a difference, you go and change the system so that these kids have a fighting chance to be successful. And I immediately wanted to do that. So I became a psychologist and never really truly got that involved in individual therapy. Like I did it because you go through training and you do it. It's the clinical piece. I worked in primary care settings and I did it. You, you know, it becomes part of who you are. But what would really, what really drew me to psychology was that it helps explain things. It helps you understand human behavior and emotion and the drivers of really who we are. And so I, I started applying that whole political policy arm that I told you about that I grew up with with this new healthcare enterprise that I was now integrated into. And I said, nobody's really talking about mental health policy as it relates to helping those kids that I started out wanting to help. And so I did a headfirst deep dive and got into family medicine, which is a, from a medical specialty perspective, I think, and I'm extremely biased here, and uh, perhaps you are too, just a bit, that it is um, the, the medical specialty that best understands the statement that it is impossible to address issues of health without looking at the individual in the context of family and family in the context of community. Short of that, you're just tinkering. You're, you're addressing health one piece of it at a time, which doesn't lead to any type of substantial, meaningful change. So for me, like the one-on-one -on -one is great, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for clinicians, but I see my job as trying to complement their work. I want to make it easier for clinicians to be able to serve the patients they need to see in the settings that they need to see them. I want to make it easier for the patients and the families to be able to get the highest quality care wherever they want it. And so part of it is just a journey and maturing over the years and applying, you know, this punk rock mentality that I have in my brain to pretty much everything that I do to try and change mental health. I want to stick with that theme of how the system helps the individual patient. And can you give us an example of a way in which the system has helped somebody to, to deal with the challenge in their lives that you would have seen in family practice or in clinical psychology? Here in the States and perhaps in other parts of the world, Primary care is the first stop on your journey to get help for your health. And, and we usually have a relationship with the person that we're seeing. You, you might know them. You might have seen them since you were a child. 
They might be the clinician in the community that you know you can call. You might have seen them on TV talking about the latest, you know, influenza strain, whatever. We have a relationship with primary care. And we also know that primary care as a function within healthcare is comprehensive. So it is not allowed just to address the piece where we have medical specialties that focus on just a, a small piece of your health. Primary care can't do that or else you're going to fall through the cracks and they're going to miss something. Its function is to be comprehensive. So from a systems perspective, what I have seen happen is that here in the United States, we have undervalued primary care substantially and even perhaps in the rest of the world too. But from a systems perspective, it continues to be this bright shining light, this beacon of good opportunities and places where people are receiving the type of care that they need. And what I've advocated for, which is the reason I start with primary care, is that I believe that the triplets separated at birth have always been public health, primary care, and mental health. My mentor taught me that early on. And so when you bring those three siblings together, you get amazing things that benefit the patient and their family. And that is the system. But without the integration of those things, unfortunately, what happens is it just becomes this disparate, just these disparate pieces that don't necessarily work collectively towards improving your health. So that's probably the best example I can give you of the system helping people is looking at our general practice and our primary care settings because they have and will continue to be that first stop for so many people on their journey. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. I'm still of the view, perhaps you are as well, that those triplets still haven't been brought back into the family. They're still very separate. And so for for a primary care clinician to access good quality mental health services is still a challenge, no matter where in the world you live. Is there a fix? Do you see hope? I listen, I am in the hope business, my friend. So I, I see hope everywhere. Uh, it is part of my job to make sure that people have hope. Yes, but as as my um, my other mentor would say, you know, hope is not a strategy. So let's talk about the strategy and what's happening to bring those three together. Funny enough, COVID has, which is not a funny thing, I should clarify, but COVID has forced us to reconcile how our lack of investment in public health infrastructure, our lack of investment in primary care, and the fragmentation of mental health, public health, and primary care works against us actually healing as a nation, healing as a world with COVID. We've seen all those little fissures, those little cracks in the foundation um, only get greater because of COVID. And if you weren't paying attention, um, which I know most of of the folks listening to this were, it has highlighted opportunities to really rectify egregious structural mistakes that have been codified over decades through policy and through payment mechanisms. So I think that there is movement in that direction, primarily because COVID has forced us to see the, the failures that we've had as a society, uh, as a world, in, in bringing those three together. But honestly, the fragmentation problem is something that I fight quite a bit every day. I think that it, we've made pretty bad mistakes early on in our understanding of health 
that teased apart those core components like mental from physical just arbitrarily because we didn't know any better. Well, it's 2022 and the science will not allow us to continue to treat the mind as if it's separate from the body. And the, the evidence will not allow us to continue to see things like public health, primary care and mental health as separate. But it's a lot of work to be able to bring them back together. So, yes, I have hope. I see examples of this everywhere all over the globe where you are bringing mental health into primary care. You are seeing public health mentalities embraced at a population level. But it's going to take some time. The next generation is what gives me hope because they're the ones that are asking and demanding for more. They're the ones that are being trained in this new model that you and I are talking about. I'm an old guy now. And so I can say, like, there's people coming up that have learned a whole lot more about this earlier than I did. And I, I actually think they're going to be the ones that we're following soon. I agree it's going to take another generation for us to get there. But you're right. We are getting to the point where it isn't just being asked for. It's being demanded by patients the world over who are saying this isn't good enough. We need something better. And you're right. COVID really did bring all of this into sharp relief. And as you've said, and as we have noticed around the world, rates of alcohol abuse, suicide and drug abuse have increased exponentially during COVID and have brought a lot of the consequences of that into, into our lives. So let's start from where we are today. Given the enormous demand for that healthcare service, for support for those patients, where do we start when the rubber hits the road this morning? Let me lay some more context here for just a second as to how bad it is, because I actually think that helps explain where we need to start. You described some of the issues that we've seen around deaths of despair, deaths to drug, alcohol, and suicide. In the U.S. alone in 2020, which is the first year of COVID, as, as many remember, we saw 186,000 lives lost to drug, alcohol, or suicide. That is the most ever on record. And the provisional data for drug, drug overdose alone in 2021-2022 showed 108,000 lives lost, again, the most ever, which is a phrase that, frankly, I tire of saying because we are going in the wrong direction. And so when we wanted to look at where, where do we start, I actually think we, we go back to, you know, we can go back two decades and look at this trend that has emerged on why, why we are losing people to deaths of despair. Drug, alcohol, and suicide has been on the, this, this huge increase for 20 plus years now. And we have not made the changes necessary to acknowledge these problems. Uh, what we've done is we've become desensitized to the data. We've said, oh, suicide rates up 25% the last 10 years. Okay, well, we'll fix that next time. Oh, drug overdose deaths. Yeah, it was 75,000. Oh, it's 100,000. Okay, we'll fix that later. And so that problem is so pervasive now that it actually points in the direction of where to start. And, and this is a word that I'm going to use, which I, I think is appropriate for this, but it comes back to prevention. It, it's a word that in healthcare we don't often use because by nature of how healthcare systems have been designed, they, they get people when they're sick. They are about treating illness. And so it's very hard to be proactive and engaged in something like primary prevention when your job and what you get paid to do is to address the person that's sick. But where we start is to prioritize prevention. 
It's to make it something that's not just public health authority. It's all of our responsibility to really be engaged proactively in making sure that we can prevent things like drug, alcohol, and suicide from getting worse. And there's different tactics and strategies for all of that. From a public policy perspective, if you want to look at something like alcohol, there are proven evidence-based strategies that we can put into place that can decrease alcohol consumption, period. Now, we don't often engage in those because alcohol has become socially acceptable. We don't think of it as a big problem as we do something like heroin or cocaine. But yet, there are strategies that we could use that would actually help us prioritize prevention. Drug overdose deaths. Right now, we have a lot of really nasty synthetic opioids that are on the streets all over the world. And these synthetic opioids are killing people uh, at rates that we have never seen because they are so potent. Uh, just for your listeners, and I know you know this, but traditional opioids derived from plants, synthetic opioids, lab created, extremely potent, and can kill you with the smallest dose. And so we have to then engage in a different type of prevention. That's not, We're now into that secondary or tertiary type of prevention where we need to embrace harm reduction practices. We need to be out there on the street where everybody knows how to administer a drug overdose medication to somebody that might be overdosing on the street. We need to have vending machines like they do in New York City where you can get access to these medications or needles if you need to have a safe needle exchange. That stuff is still prevention and we have not prioritized it. So that's where I start. Now, that, that's a heavy lift. That's a paradigmic shift for so many people because we're used to treating all the problems. We're used to catching it way too late. But that is how we are going to see those trends change. It's not a new program. It's not more money into healthcare for more clinicians. It's not about creating the, the latest, greatest drug. This is literally about going upstream and meeting people where they are and investing truly investing in prevention. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I want to go back to your roots and mine, which is back in the consulting room. What do we say to those desperate people who currently come into primary care or to the emergency department where they've got multimorbidity, where they've got comorbidities, polypharmacy, they are an aging population, and yet the system says you've got 10 or 15 minutes to service this person before you move on to the next one. Because the system is not allowing us what we need to do today to fix that person's problem. Prevention is almost too late at that point. What do we say to those clinicians and those patients? I, I think you have to say the only thing that you can say when you recognize all those hard, those truths that you just described about the system. And that is that I am here for you. I am on your team, I'm supportive of you, and we're gonna do this together. There, there's this installation of hope that occurs when you feel like that you have somebody that's there for you and with you. Now, from a primary care perspective, you could say that every day, and, and yes, it's true. 
And, you know, it may benefit X number of patients, it may not. But for that one patient that they hear that they're not alone, that one patient that they hear that there's somebody there that's going to go on this journey with them and fight this fight, like that is what can save a life. So you're right. I mean, there was a study, and I can't remember, I'm, as I joked with you at the beginning, I'm, I'm, I'm coming off vacation, and so my stats are not in my head like they used to be. But there was a study that was done a few years ago that looked at how many more hours in the day it would require of a primary care clinician to actually put into place all the preventative recommendations that were out there. And it was something astronomical. And it's because you know, we don't have the time in practice to actually spend with the patients to do the, those things. And it, we get paid in the units. And that is uh, not to get soapbox here on a soapbox here, but to me, if you want to see where we made the greatest mistake in healthcare, take a read of Paul Starr's amazing book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine. It, it actually is applicable for the globe, even though it's written about the US. The first sentence of that book, says the dream of reason did not take power into account. And right then and there, you begin to see the unraveling of American healthcare, that it became about power, a hierarchy, transactions, and reinforcing that power, that hierarchy, and those transactions through policy. And so what's reasonable is that people would have their needs met in some meaningful way by a person they had a relationship with. It is relationally driven, not transactionally driven. So I guess that's a meandering way to answer and get at your point and your question. But from, for me, like it's what we have to do. We have to recognize that the small moments of us instilling hope in someone might be enough to get them through the next day. It might be enough to get them to show up tomorrow. And what, I mean, what's better than that? We all need that at times. I love the concept of the small moment. And I want to focus on that for a minute. You said at the beginning of this conversation that the one thing that you learned early on in your career was context was everything. Context is everything. Who is this person? Who are their family? Who's their community? What do they want for themselves? And we've gone from that context to a system which is very reductionist. So it's a technical fix. If it was possible to fix somebody's problems in 10 or 15 minutes, we would be in a system that was working perfectly fine. I just wonder whether those small moments that you're talking about are the moments when I convey to you, as doctor and patient, I convey to you that you matter, that I see you, that I hear you. Those moments don't have to be very long. And I wonder whether, in fact, there's another piece to this jigsaw, which is how do we train doctors to do that? And that's not to say that the challenge they face is not enormous. But I do wonder whether the one thing that we could do, and you're a clinical psychologist, is to say to those clinicians, step away for five minutes from, from two minutes from that computer, look that patient in the eye and just ask them the context in which they are bringing their problem to you. Does that resonate? Absolutely, it does. And I, I love the simplicity of it. And, and I actually think from a, 
uh, from just a pure pragmatic point of view, you, again, you humanize the clinician. They, they don't, they aren't just simply that person on the pedestal that you look to when you've got the problem and you do what they say, but they, they humanize themselves and it becomes more of a relationship. And, and that to me is a difference maker. So I, I, I hundred percent agree with you. I think we can do that, but let me take it a step further. What happens then if those clinicians begin to try and empower their patients to practice the same type of showing up when they go home to their families? What happens if there's a new skill that can be taught to the patient or shared with the patient that they go home and they work with with their, their kids? To me, this is a, it's the literature, if you just take a step back and look at what the WHO has done over the years around task sharing and task shifting, I mean, what better way to democratize the, these amazing functions that we have in places like primary care than to empower those patients and those families with a new set of skills that they can then go back to their communities and use? I, I think it's it's one thing for the clinician to take a minute and to humanize themselves and to engage in a relationship with the, the patient authentically. It's a whole nother thing to take it to the next level and to think about ways to empower that patient to then leave that clinic, go back to their context, their setting, and then in, in, in impact those people around them. Like, I'm a huge fan of this. We, we've been doing some work here in the States around this for mental health. And we've taken a page from books all over the, the globe because uh, the rest of the world's figured this out a lot better than we have. But uh, we call it community-initiated care. It's care in community, by community, for community. And it's what happens when each of us use the strengths that we already have to help somebody else. That brother, that sister that you've got, that colleague and that is in pain, like talk to them, show up for them, help them. Because that one moment, like we just talked about a minute ago in the primary care space, might save their life. Primary care has a unique role to play there too. You talked about partnership as being the new paradigm, the new way in which we will do, and I hate to use the word business, but let's use that word business in healthcare. It's the new way in which we will turn up and recognize that it isn't always in that clinician's office that the solution will be found to the patient's problem. It may well be that that patient will connect more broadly with their community and in fact come to that clinician as a partner, almost a co-pilot in the care going forward. I want to go to something that is really important here, and that is the Wellbeing Trust. And you, you are the president of the Wellbeing Trust. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there and how this might fit into the picture we're describing. Well, thank you. I, I came to Wellbeing Trust about five years ago after live, having a pretty successful career in academia. And I, I came to the foundation side because I was really curious as to what it would be like to have the uh, opportunity to put resources into the places that need it most. So we are a foundation. We are a national foundation, and we focus on advancing the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation here in the States. We have worked internationally with our friends and our colleagues. We learn from other countries and take a lot of the lessons that you all have taught us and apply them here. But we are focused primarily here just on the U.S. 
Our goal is to decrease deaths of despair, those deaths that we talked about a minute ago, by 100,000 over the next decade, which, as I've already mentioned, uh, kind of gave you the punchline. We're going in the wrong direction there. So we've got a lot of work to do as an organization to really figure that out. But as a foundation, we are very much about partnerships. We are not the largest foundation. We're not the smallest foundation. We're about finding the people out there that we can partner with to do good work. So some of that work, as we've discussed today, it might look like that community-initiated care model that I described to you. We think it's important for us to have communities that have been able to gain the skills to help each other. We think it's important to really embrace community-based strategies that allow for mental health to be seen much less a clinical issue, though indefinitely it is in some cases, but much more something that we just own at the local level. Um, we know that there's some power there. So we invest in solutions that might be around creating products for policy. I'm very proud to say that here in, in the States, we've been We've started an organization, we, we seed funded an organization called Inseparable. Um, it's a policy advocacy organization that has single-handedly pushed major state policy here in the U.S., has been driving force behind some of the federal policy and bringing additional resources into mental health. We started a, uh, another organization that is focused on increasing the amount of financing that comes into the mental health space called Mindful Philanthropy. And the reasons we do this are very basic is that we think that applying a social movement theories and principles to mental health has been missing. And so we adopt those and we invest in them. And by doing so, I think over the next decade, we're probably going to see some, some robust change in the mental health space. But we're, you know, we're, um, we're young, we're scrappy. We've been around about six years now as an organization. We were started by the Providence Health System in the Pacific Northwest part of the country. Providence is one of the largest nonprofit health systems in the U.S. And they, they decided, and their CEO, Dr. Rod Hockman, made a commitment that they wanted to create a foundation that focused on addressing mental health. And instead of keeping it an internal and saying, just what are you going to do for the health system? They said, we want you to go out and do this across the country. So we are a national foundation that focuses all over and we work with health systems and we work outside of health systems and we do our part to try and make a difference in the mental health space. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. The U.S. spends 19% of GDP on healthcare. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars. And yet the results that are achieved in the U.S., which should be world-class, are actually not always on a par with countries that spend even less, far less, on healthcare. Something has gone wrong in the U.S. healthcare system, and it can't be fixed just by politicians. And I know that you come from that stable, but it can't be fixed just by politicians. This is a community, it is now a community problem, something that needs more attention at that level. I, I couldn't agree more. And one of uh, our board members has often said that once you realize something isn't working, it's unethical to proceed as if it is. 
And I think what you just described is a, a masterclass overview of why the U.S. is failing, is that we have prioritized illness over health, disease over health, sickness over health, and we've created these um, businesses, for lack of a better term, that really profit off of sickness. And and I don't think there's any surprise there. We, we realize that. But if we want to do something meaningful about health, it is not going to be found in the walls of a clinic. <laughs> going back to something you said earlier made me think, yeah, going to the relationship of primary care, the, there's nothing magical about a clinic. They're sterile. They smell funny. You go in there and you don't necessarily feel like it's your favorite place to be. The art on the walls is hideous. You know, the carpet's got stains on it, whatever. So like, there's nothing magic about a clinic. What's magical is the relationship piece. So in this, as you were describing, the, the worst thing that we could do is to simply put more money into that because that has demonstrated that it is not effective. And so therefore it is unethical for us to continue to treat it as if it is. Where the money needs to go is in the other things that we know drive positive health. That includes things like where you live. It includes things like housing and transportation and economic and mobility and opportunity and education. All these things that we just sometimes, I think we, we've, the last couple of decades, we started to own the phrase social determinants of health. We don't even use that in our organization. We talk about community conditions and, and these deeper factors that are at play here. Because if you don't address poverty, if you don't look at it at a systems level, forget about having positive health outcomes. And I just think it's an opportunity for us to really rethink. I, I don't know in our lifetimes if we'll ever get there. I thought COVID what might have been one of those examples where we saw you know, an opening for change, but I don't think that we're probably ever going to see healthcare change. It's going to continue to drive a massive portion of our GDP just because it will. We do not control costs here in the U.S., so you've got some people that charge a lot and some people that charge a little, but there's very little regulation over, over the price control there, and that's a problem. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a, maybe another podcast for another day, but I think most of us that live in this space realize how lucky we are to have so many resources, but yet how unlucky we are to have learned how to use those resources in the wrong way. But we're also incredibly lucky in having people like you, Ben, actually bringing your, your creativity, your background, your interest, your clear passion to improve the health and well-being of the people in the U.S., which is fantastic. Ben Miller, president of the Wellbeing Trust, it's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your insight, and for reflecting back what we all believe is a very hopeful future for us all. Thank you. I, it's an honor. You give me hope. Leaders like you are what we need right now, spreading the good word and getting out there and trying to make a difference. So I very much appreciate the time. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>